Welcome to the Labor Force Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Strukin, proud member of New York State United Teachers, celebrating 50 years this year. So what's the pay? Is that not a question you should be able to attain before you apply for a job? Apparently it takes a law to make it so. And we've rightly heard a lot about the 13,000 UAW members on strike. What about the other 133,000? 10, 12-hour days? Voluntary overtime? More like aid and skate, and that's quite enough. And by the way, if no serious progress by Friday at noon, as Spain announced yesterday, more plants will strike. Then an update on the writers and actors strike, and the union drive in NCAA basketball, another sign that this labor upsurge will not be going quietly. From the Associated Press, Help Wanted advertisements in New York will have to disclose proposed pay rates after a statewide salary transparency law went into effect last Sunday, part of growing state and city efforts to give women and people of color a tool to advocate for equal pay for equal work. Employers with at least four workers will be required to disclose salary ranges for any job advertised externally to the public or internally to workers interested in a promotion or transfer. Pay transparency, supporters say, will prevent employers from offering some job candidates less or more money based on age, gender, race, or other factors not related to their skills. Advocates believe the change could also help underpaid workers realize they make less than people doing the same job. A similar pay transparency ordinance has been in effect in New York City since 2022. Now the rest of the state joins a handful of others with similar laws, including California and Colorado. There is a trend, not just in legislators but among workers, to know how much they can expect going into a job. There's a demand from workers to know of the pay range, said Dahe Kim, a state policy senior counsel at the National Women's Law Center. Compliance will be a challenge, said Frank Kerbeen, director of human resources at the New York Business Council, which has criticized the law for putting an additional administrative burden on employers. We have small employers who don't even know about the law, said Kerbeen who predicted there would be a lot of unintentional non-compliance. So maybe they should be aware as business owners. After all, if I were a business owner who needed to attract quality employees, I'd want to be as forthcoming as possible about what I'm offering, particularly around pay. Sounds like a no-brainer. To avoid trouble when setting a salary range, an employer should examine pay for current employees, said Alan Shockey-Brod, who practices employment law at Tully Wrinkley, a private law firm. State Senator Jessica Ramos, a Democrat representing parts of Queens, said the law is a win for labor rights groups. This is something that, organically, workers are asking for, she said. Particularly with young people entering the workforce, they'll have a greater understanding about how their work is valued. Exactly. They've grown up immersed in information and are used to having it at their fingertips, so they have every expectation and every right to expect the same with the details of a prospective job they might take. On to those auto workers not on strike and being asked to work extra. Not so fast. As reported by Labor Notes, auto workers at the big three companies are taking various actions in support of a strike by UAW members. While only 13,000 of 146,000 auto workers are officially on strike, others are refusing voluntary overtime, which is crucial for many plans to compensate for understaffing. This collective action is forcing some plans to shut down, such as for this past weekend. In a Working Without a Contract, Know Your Rights Bulletin, 
Officers answered the question, what else can I do? In three words, refuse voluntary overtime. Workers at Ford's Buffalo Stamping in New York actively discouraged voluntary overtime, considering it crossing an unofficial picket line and helping the company. As a result, Ford had to cancel Saturday and Sunday work. Workers at Stellantis's Mac Assembly in Detroit are promoting the aid and skate strategy, where they leave after eight hours and share their reasons on an unofficial Facebook page. The goal is to make a financial sacrifice to support the strike and not assist the company. Workers at GM's highly profitable SUV plant in Arlington, Texas, are refusing to work through breaks and lunch, as well as declining extended hours. Despite management's efforts to push for overtime, many workers are saying no. Some workers faced opposition from local union officials who warned about potential firings for inciting a work stoppage. However, the workers cited UAW President Sean Fain's instructions and stood firm. Stellantis disciplined 15 drivers who initially refused voluntary overtime, which later became mandatory. The workers are filing a grievance over the sudden change. Workers have the right to refuse voluntary overtime under the National Labor Relations Act, Section 7, when working under an expired contract. As a union, we are coming out of a time where nothing much was asked of us, said Tennessee GM worker Kenneth LaRue. One very positive thing that can come out of this strike and out of refusing overtime is it will ignite discussion on the floor that will help teach new people that union and solidarity are actions, not words. In the last six months, they made $21 billion. No one said a word. No one said a word. In the last four years, it's amazing to me, the price of cars went up 30%. CEO pay went up 40%. No one had any complaints. No one said a word. God forbid that workers ask their fair share. That's the end of the world. That's the end of the world. Fruits of the labor and the product they produce. That's the end of the world. It's not that we're going to wreck, wreck the economy. We're going to wreck their economy. The economy that only works for the billionaire class. All of us should support the strikers. Their fight against corporate greed is our fight. All of us should support the strikers. Their fight against corporate greed is our fight. All of us should support the strikers. Their fight against corporate greed is our fight. All of us should support the strikers. Their fight against corporate greed is our fight. In the last six months, they made $21 billion. No one said a word. No one said a word. In the last four years, it's amazing to me, the price of cars went up 30%. CEO pay went up 40%. No one had any complaints. No one said a word. God forbid the workers ask their fair share. That's the end of the world. That's the end of the world. Fruits of labor and the product they produce. That's the end of the world. It's not that we're going to wreck, wreck the economy. We're going to wreck their economy. The economy that only works for the billionaire class. It doesn't work for the working class. Hear that, analysts? All right, UAW President Sean Fain, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it, sir. We did invite the big three automakers to come on. They declined. The invitation is open. Now to Hollywood. According to Vox, the double strike involving writers and actors has created uncertainty. The unions are showing strong solidarity, but the AMPTP, representing major studios, is grappling with PR issues. You don't say. The Writers Guild of America began their strike on May 2nd, while SAG-AFTRA started their strike on July 14th. The AMPTP and WGA have announced plans to resume negotiations. Talks were scheduled to begin again today, September 20th. 
Initially, Drew Barrymore announced her talk show's return without writers, which raised concerns of scabbing. Later, she decided not to return until the WGA strike ends, along with other shows like The Jennifer Hudson Show and The Talk. So why does an AMPTP just meet demands, besides the fact they're vulture capitalists? The AMPTP represents diverse companies with varying business models, some deeply reliant on the entertainment industry, while others are not. This complicates negotiations, and some speculate that certain companies may see an opportunity to gain an edge during the strike. Viewers have already felt the strike's impact, of course. The Emmys were postponed, some movie release dates changed, and fall TV shows are affected, with game shows and reality shows mostly unaffected. Award season in the fall TV lineup will likely see more noticeable consequences if the strikes persist. As I've indicated, so be it. Find something else to watch, as there is still content galore on any platform. A fair deal is a fair deal is a fair deal especially with the issues involved in this dispute. Finally, another sign of the times in terms of labor resurgence against an exploitive behemoth known as the NCAA. The men's basketball team at Dartmouth College has filed a petition to unionize. The application was filed yesterday to the National Labor Relations Board by the local 560 union based out of Hanover. A group of 15 players are involved. The claim does not include managers or support staff. Now, this isn't the first time a college sports team has attempted to be classified as employees. The Northwestern University football team made a similar effort back in 2015, but the NLRB declined to accept jurisdiction over the matter at the time. In a statement, Dartmouth College officials say they are, quote, carefully considering the petition with the aim of responding promptly yet thoughtfully in accordance with Dartmouth's educational mission and priorities. Now, that Northwestern case could end up serving as a roadmap for how this one ultimately plays out, but it is important to note that there are several big differences between that situation and this one. Supreme Court's ruling on name, image, and likeness back in 2021 has obviously had a major impact on finances as it relates to college athletes. We've also seen a lot of unionization efforts have a little bit more success in recent years as well. Also, as a member of the Ivy League, Dartmouth men's basketball players do not receive athletic scholarships. So that's another wrinkle we did not see in that Northwestern case. We'll keep an eye on this story as it develops. But that's not all. As reported by The Athletic, in February, the National College Players Association filed an unfair labor practice charge to the NLRB against the NCAA, Pac-12, and USC as joint employers of FBS football players and men's and women's basketball players. That move was the latest of multiple legal attempts by many to reshape how college athletes can earn compensation for the billions of dollars college sports bring in. The NCAA has stated that athletes should not be employees and has lobbied Congress for a federal law that designates them as non-employees. And NCAA President Charlie Baker has said he believes most college athletes do not want to become employees of their school, league, or the NCAA. I don't think you'll find very many student-athletes who want to be employees. I haven't found many, and there are a lot of really good reasons for that. Obviously, there's a lot of traffic in the course at this point about this issue these days, which is going to limit what I would choose to say about it. But I think student-athletes want to be student-athletes, and it's up to us to figure out how to make that work for them in a variety of environments and in circumstances that are different. Maybe there are ways to do this that are different for certain divisions and certain programs at certain levels, but if we're really serious about being for student-athletes, I'm not sure that they would think that's where they want to go. That said, do NCAA compensation rules violate antitrust law? In a Northern California courtroom, 
a significant federal antitrust lawsuit titled House versus NCAA is unfolding, and its outcome could have far-reaching implications for college sports. The lawsuit involves three former college athletes who are seeking not only NIL, that's name, image, likeness, back pay, and a share of the broadcast revenue, but also class certification, which would expand the lawsuit to potentially thousands of athletes. U.S. District Judge Claudia Wilkins' decision on class action status will determine whether a massive number of athletes may receive damages. The stakes are high, with potential damages reaching into the billions of dollars. The requested classes include Division I football and men's and women's basketball players and athletes from other sports. Class certification could pressure the NCAA and defendants to consider settlements due to the enormous potential cost of damages. The NCAA argues against class action status, claiming substantial differences in athletes' NIL worth over time. The House case could eliminate NCAA rules limiting athletes' NIL activities, potentially allowing schools and conferences to provide NIL payments, and raising questions about other compensation limits. Judge Wilkin has previously ruled against the NCAA in similar cases. Combined with other ongoing legal proceedings, this lawsuit could reshape the entire college athletics model, urging leaders to consider new approaches. So there you have it. The NCAA's steadfast amateurism was waning fast, and this just exposes it further. Maybe someday we'll have a country in which the highest-paid public employee in a majority of states isn't a college football or basketball coach, and these athletes can be recognized as more than just cogs in the money machine. Sound familiar? So thanks for listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can find Labor Force on Spotify for podcasters and select a level, starting at just a dollar a month. Also, please share, rate, and review to help others find the show. You can listen anywhere you get your podcasts. And speaking of listening and broadening your worker contact, the Labor Force podcast is now affiliated with the Labor Radio Podcast Network, an indispensable labor source where you can find many more shows like this one. You can check it out at laborradionetwork.org. Until next time, take care and stay union strong.